0: Good morning, Christ Central Church. Good to see you all. Thank you. As Erica said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Grateful to be gathered together on this Palm Sunday morning. Before we dive into God's Word, I do have a quick announcement for you. It has nothing to do with Holy Week. Um, Starting in two weeks, uh, just like Pastor Daniel did last summer, I'm going to be going on sabbatical. Uh, This is a time uh, that the church has set apart for me for intentional rest. Uh, The goal here is sustained, healthy, lifelong ministry. Uh, The the hope would be that I would be able to serve you and love you better on the other side. Uh, So I'm really grateful for that. Uh, There'll be a letter that'll be going out later this week that explains that in more detail. But I did just want to take a moment... Uh, while I had the stage and just say thank you to the leadership of our church uh, that prioritizes the health of us pastors and is giving me this opportunity for some, some much needed rest. Really grateful. And also wanted to say to you, uh, the congregation, uh, that I will miss you. Uh, I am coming back, I promise. Uh, and I look forward to sharing with you uh, the ways in which God works in my heart in my life and my family over this season. So that's uh, a little announcement there. Uh, Now I'd love to lead us now into this time together in God's Word. Uh, As Daniel mentioned, it is Palm Sunday, uh, the beginning of Holy Week, where churches all over the world are reflecting upon this day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the very last time. And this morning we're going to be looking at Matthew's account of what is often referred to as the triumphal entry. Uh, We... I looked at this passage with you years ago, and so I'm excited to look at it again. A quick note that the bulletin is wrong. We're actually going to be in Matthew's Gospel, not Luke. So you can follow along on the screens or on your Bibles. But I'm going to invite you now, if you're able to stand, uh, for the reading of God's Word. This is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 10. Now, when the disciples drew near to Jerusalem... And came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the Z- daughter of Zion, To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. I ask God that you would now speak to us through your word that as we spend time together in this book that you would meet us here that we would encounter you the living God and be transformed father give us eyes to see ears to hear and hearts to understand in Jesus name amen you may be seated Back in 2015, the New York Times published an article by Wesley Morris entitled, The Year We Obsessed Over Identity. In this piece, Morris unpacks how our culture has become infatuated with with self, obsessing over the question, who am I? And not. Surprisingly, seven years later, our society is still pining over the very same question. It's a great picture of this in a TV series that I'm a big fan of. This is Us. This was years ago, uh, so I'm going to take you back if you're a fan. But in this scene, Tess, a young teenage girl, is wrestling with some 21st century teenage identity questions. And this is what her uncle Kevin says to her in this place of questioning. He says, this whole idea of not really knowing who you are deep down inside, that's my life story. One thing that I have learned, I don't think we figure out exactly who we are all at once. I think it happens over a long period of time, like piece by piece. I think that's sort of how it works, you know. I think we Through this life, slowly but surely, just collecting these little pieces of ourselves that we can't really live without until eventually we have enough of them to feel whole. And Kevin is articulating, I think, what society has embraced as true. The goal in this life is to answer the question, who am I? to find oneself, if you will. And, and, and if you succeed in this venture, you might, you just might feel whole. Kevin doesn't explicitly say it, but what is implied here is that when we discover the answer to that question, only then will we know how to live, what to do with our lives, what to wear, how to spend our time, our money, who to associate with and be friends with. That to know who you are answers all of life's other important questions. And don't get me wrong, I'm I'm not saying that answering the question, who am I, is insignificant or unnecessary. However, the Bible is built upon the fundamental proposition that who I am is not the most important question in this life for you to answer. The Bible asserts that far and away, the most important question for us to answer is not who am I, But instead, the question that is lingering at the end of our text who is this? Who is this man, Jesus? And what we will see is that the answer to that question, who is Christ, enables us to answer all the other questions that are around us. This morning, I want to unpack this story from Matthew 21, and I have two points, two questions for us. First, most clearly, who is this man Jesus? And then secondly, why is he here? Who is Jesus and why is he here? So let's begin. In many ways, the whole purpose of Matthew's gospel is to answer that question. Who is Jesus? And throughout the book, we're, we're given these hints and clues about his identity. But then here in t- Matthew 21, Matthew finally pulls back the curtain for all to see. Look again at verse 2. Our story begins with Jesus giving some bizarre instructions. He says, go find a donkey and a colt and bring them to me. Now, without appropriate context, we might assume that Jesus is simply tired and he would like to ride instead of walk. But we know this From this gospel and the others that that the disciples were constantly on the move, moving from city to city. And Jesus never rode. He always walked. So we're clued in here. There's something unique, something special going on. But what is it? I think there's a cultural component and a religious component that we need to examine here to fully understand the weight of this moment. Look first at the cultural ramifications of what is happening. See in the ancient Near East, there was one person who always rode and never walked when they came into town, and that was the king. First century ancient Near East, it was beneath royalty to walk the dirty streets. Not only that, but it was assumed that if a king needed your help, if the king needed your animal, he could claim that animal for his purposes. Verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. We should note here that the livestock were often people's most valuable possession. You didn't just loan out your donkey, only if the king required it, only if the king asked. So there's this cultural piece that's at play here that would have been on the forefront of the disciples' minds. But there was also a religious piece that we need to take a look at. Look again at verse 4. It says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew quotes Zechariah a message that was recorded 500 years ago, the promise that someday someone special was going to roll into town. And this prophecy Zechariah had given was very specific. He gave these details so that the people, God's people, would know how to recognize this person when he arrived. He said he would ride on a donkey, and not just any donkey, but a foal, a young donkey that had never before been ridden. And then here comes this man, Jesus, who had already fulfilled countless other prophecies over the past three years. But this, this was the big one. This was the last straw. And finally, the disciples, finally the crowd, they get it. They realize who this Jesus is. He is the long-awaited-for king. And when that penny dropped, the crowd went wild. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the tree and spread them on the road. Do you see what's happening here? They're rolling out the red carpet because the king has arrived. Verse 10 says there was such a ruckus that the whole city was stirred. The Greek word here that is used for stirred is seismos, which we get the the English word seismic. Matthew is saying that the the city is shaking with excitement. Brothers and sisters, what kind of response does the coming of Christ elicit in you? It's so easy to get bored with this story, isn't it? If you've been in church, you've heard this many, many times. You've probably seen the flannel board, Jesus riding the donkey. I can confess, after the past two years, excitement for me is pretty hard to come by. And yet I refuse to let this moment Pass me by. And I want to encourage you and challenge you to do the same. We can't make our hearts get excited, can we? But we can sit in the moment long enough. We can quiet and still our souls long enough for the weightiness of what's happening to land. I challenge you, I charge you to do that this week. To sit in this story that is so familiar, that is so ordinary, And allow the weight of what is being spoken here to hit you. That the God of the universe has come down. The king is here. Which brings us to our second point this morning. It's not simply enough to recognize that the king is here. We have to understand why he came. And what's interesting is that this crowd, in spite of this amazing welcome party that they threw for King Jesus, it becomes very clear That just days later, they had no idea why this king had come. You see, a few days later, Jesus gets arrested. That's right, this king has a criminal record. And when that happens, just as quickly as the crowd had jumped on the Jesus is King movement, they jump right off and they bail on Christ. Soon after he is arrested, the crowd that rolled out the red carpet gathers again around Jesus. Instead of saying, Hosanna, they say, crucify him. Not just the crowd, though. Jesus' own disciples bail as well. As soon as he's arrested, every single one of them heads for the hills. Even Peter, the leader of the pack, three times denies that he even met the man. What happened? How did this, how did Jesus so quickly go from royalty to rubbish? I think the answer has to do with misguided expectations. These people didn't understand why the king had come. Think about the role of the first century king. The role of the king in the first century was to deliver and protect. You've Got all this flux, the the Nations are battling against one another. There's always military conquests happening. And so the king has a very specific and simple task. Deliver and protect. And you can see why the Jews were excited. Here comes this man, Jesus, riding into town. And he seems to fit the description. He's born in Bethlehem, family of David. Even these little bitty minutia of prophecies that that Zechariah and others had made. He fits all of them. So he must be the king who's going to deliver the Jews from oppressive King Caesar. He's going to establish a new kingdom where the Jews once again live in peace and prosperity. But then the king gets arrested. All bets are off. Clearly, a man in jail has no power to overthrow anyone. A man in jail has no power at all. And so they, they decide, the crowd decides, this is not... The king, after all. But if they had understood why he had come, they would have recognized that in spite of his arrest and impending death, he really was the king after all. What is it that they missed? Two things that were so critical that the crowd failed to see. Jesus, first, is the prince of peace. What kind of king is he? He's the prince of peace. Jesus carefully chooses this prophecy in Zechariah. If you've been reading in our Lenten devotional, there's a helpful bit in there about Zechariah 9. It talks about how normally when a king entered a city, he'd ride in on a war horse, a, a giant animal with a massive chariot clothed in military regalia. This was to convey his military power to remind his people to respect him or else. However, there's one instance when the king would not show his power and might. And that's when the beloved king would enter into his own capital city. Then he would ride on a donkey. Why? Well, he's communicating peace. The king is not needing to threaten and subdue his own people because they were his people, his family. He was showing them his love and care and respect for them. By choosing this prophecy, Jesus is revealing what kind of king he will be. Not a power-hungry tyrant, but a prince of peace. A king that if accepted would welcome and receive the praise of his people, but if rejected, a king that would not defend himself, even to the very point of death. The crowd missed not only that Jesus was The Prince of Peace, but also that he came to bring a different kind of rescue. It would have made no sense to the first century Jew that they would have only been familiar with a king who comes in power, who comes with force. And yet here we have this king who's coming in peace, coming on a donkey. The Jews were right. If, if, if Jesus was coming to deliver them from this government oppression, he would have needed to come in power. He would have needed a huge army and lots of weapons. But government oppression is not what this people, it's not what you and me need most. It's not that Christ did not come to wage war, but not with King Caesar. Christ comes to wage war with the prince of this world, comes to wage war with the sin that has wreaked havoc in all of our lives, in all of this world, and he won. He won that decisive victory once and for all. As we will see this week, that deliverance that Christ gives comes not through power and might, but through death and sacrifice. It's not because of but rather in spite of this, that we can rejoice and rest in Christ's love, grace, and mercy for us. Jesus is crowned king through his submission, through his sacrifice, through his death. Listen to Philippians 2, how Paul paints this picture. It says, Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a weak king, right? And yet the rest of the text says that it's because of this profound display of weakness, of humility, that verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Church, the crowd missed it, the disciples missed it. But let us not miss the reality that on Palm Sunday, Jesus came not to fight but to die. And through his death and only through his death does he bring redemption that truly lasts. Remember the words from Luke chapter 1, this king will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Church, that's the redemption that is offered to you and to me. The king has come and secured a decisive victory over sin and death. And he's made a way for you and for me to be in relationship with God once again. That is why he came. And that is why we rejoice on this day and always. Because the king is on his throne. And his throne lasts forever and ever. Amen? I want to conclude by asking each of us an important question. Jesus makes clear here that he is the long awaited for king. But the question for you and me is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? Most of you are probably familiar with the late Larry King, one of the greatest interviewers of our time. Everyone who was anybody was sometime interviewed by Larry King. And one day, someone was interviewing Larry King and asking him about his life and his career. And he asked this question. He said, Larry, if you could interview anyone, who could it be? And his response, it might surprise you, Larry said, Jesus Christ. And the person was a little bit dumbfounded and responded and said, Well, Larry, what would you ask him if Jesus was sitting in front of you? And Larry said, I'd ask him if he was indeed virgin born. Because the answer to that question would define history. What Larry King, of all people, was saying is that if Jesus really is the son of God, if he really is the king of kings, it changes everything. Do you believe that Jesus is king? That through his life, death, and resurrection, that redemption is available for you and for the whole world? Is he your king? Have you received him As the Lord of your life, the object of your affection, of your worship, of your obedience. If you haven't, and you'd like to, please let us know. Let me know. Let one of the pastors know. Let one of the other leaders know. Let the person sitting next to you know. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to embrace Jesus as your king. For those of you who are here who have received Christ as king, but need to be reminded once again what that means. May you ponder on this day throughout this holy week and beyond what God is calling us to as his subjects to honor and worship King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And may our obsession be not over who am I, but rather who is this Jesus whose coming has changed everything? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would that ring true in our hearts this morning? Would the reality of your son Jesus coming blow our minds? Would we be overwhelmed by the fact that Christ came for us? The servant king came and died. He bled and died so that we might be a part of the royal family that we might be in relationship with you, Heavenly Father. God, continue to drive that truth even deeper into our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as is our custom here at Christ Central, we always follow the word preached by coming to this table. It's here at this table that God takes these truths of his word and and presses them deeper into our hearts. I want to remind you this morning that this is the king's table. That this is a privileged table that only special people can come here. And I want to remind you that you have been invited. You are welcome because of what Christ has done. He has bought and purchased a seat for you here. And we come and these are the victory spoils We get to fellowship with God forever and ever and ever because his kingdom will never end. And so I invite you this morning to come to fellowship and feast, to be reminded of what it costs for us to be at this table and allow that to warm our hearts and fill us with love and gratitude once again. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't identify as a follower of Christ, I'm so glad that you're here. I hope that you'll keep coming back. It's a great time to be checking out church, a great time to be uh, taking a peek at this uh, community. Please keep coming back. Bring your questions, bring your doubts. If you want to talk more about what it means to be a follower of Christ, love to talk with you. There's a lot of people here that would love to sit down and have a cup of coffee with you and, and hear more of where you're at. But Just keep coming back and journeying with us. Uh, but you don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. If that's where you're at, you're welcome to remain seated during this part of the service. And, uh, or you can come forward and just make this motion. We'll say a quick prayer of blessing for you. But if you're here this morning and you want to be reminded once again of the arrival of King Jesus, why he came, then come, come to this table, feast on this meal, allow God to meet you here. I do now want to invite us to prepare our hearts for this meal The way we do that, one of the ways we do that here at Christ Central is through the Apostles' Creed, through reciting to ourselves and to one another what it is that we as Christians believe. And so I'm going to invite you to do that with me. The words will be on the screen on either side and also in your bulletin. But let's let's confess our faith together. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.